Um, how many of you were here last week got to hear Peck Lindsay talk? Peck has such a long history with this church. I was so thankful that he was here. Um, try to get him here every year. I loved hearing somebody who's walked with Jesus so intimately for more than 60 years take the 23rd Psalm and just share his life story, part of it, and how God has faithfully led him, even when he didn't know it. And looking back, seeing how much the shepherd led him, I, so I really appreciate Peck doing that. And we are in the, the Psalms this summer, so we're continuing on in that. Um, this morning, we are going to be in a tough one, in fact, the toughest, maybe one of the most difficult portions of Scripture. So I want you to buckle up, because this is going to be an interesting ride, okay? Um, we are going to be today in Psalm 137. So if you would turn there, um, turn to Psalm 137, I'm reading out of the NIV. We're going to turn to a few other pages in the scripture, a couple of the Psalms, and go back to Genesis for a minute, but if you'd turn there. I was debating, should I just read this? Because there were a number of first service who had never encountered this Psalm, and there's going to be some here. I think we should encounter it together. So I would like you to stand with me. Um, This is going to be, I want you to keep your Bible because we are going to be, I want you to look at it, but we're going to read together in Psalm 137. Psalm 137. So please join me in reading the Word of God. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. I'm curious, how many of you, that's your first time to encounter Psalm 137? Anybody just honestly, like, I have never read that before, never seen that before, first time. Uh, what do you think? Even if you read it 50 times, what do you think of this psalm? Um, you know, I'm always like, how could somebody speak? How could they pray, pray with such malice, with such a vindictive heart? I mean, are you kidding me? Like taking joy in infants being dashed on rocks? Um, this type of psalm is actually called an imprecatory psalm. There's several of them. There's multiple. I'll show you in a minute. Um, here's what this prayer of imprecation is. It is a prayer in which someone is praying for God to bring down disease, despair, or destruction upon his enemies. There are six of these in the psalm. David wrote four, Asaph wrote one, and we have this one written by exile, Psalm 137. And in addition, there are 18 other psalms that contain imprecations in them. We're going to look at a couple a little bit later. Almost all of those written by David. Um, You know, I think most of us don't know what to do with these psalms, especially this one. I think we're uncomfortable with the hatred, the rage, the violence. 
Um, when you read Psalm 137, is this not like the strange uncle we all have that you just want to kind of keep hidden? You don't want anybody else to know that you're related to that guy? Isn't this Psalm like that? Right? Eugene Peterson wrote this. He asked, who let this in our prayer book? Hadn't we better get rid of it? I mean, I'm sure Thomas Jefferson, when he was cutting out parts of the Bible he didn't like, I'm sure he cut out Psalm 137, right? Isaac Watts, in his hymnal, which had a lot of hymns in it, he also um, put a lot of psalms to music, left Psalm 137 out of his hymnal. Kylie was talking to me. She grew up in the Lutheran church. Their hymnal had a lot of the psalms put to music, and she said, 137 is not in their hymnal either. A German psychologist, Franz Bugel, once wrote, about this psalm, he said, it is a text dominated by primitive, uncontrolled feelings of hatred, desire for vengeance and self-righteousness. I must acknowledge I have not read any text so marked by excessive and unbridled hatred and thirst for revenge. So again, why in the world would God put this in His Word? How can it ever be right to pray a prayer like this? Does it serve any purpose? Is there anything I can learn from this? And I'm really convinced um, that we shouldn't ignore difficult texts, but what we should do is wrestle with them and try to dig into them a little bit and to see what's really going on underneath, and that's what I want to do this morning. Um, last year when we went to this New Testament, I said relatively often, we have to read with first century eyes, and then we ask 21st century questions. If we read it with 21st century eyes, we might miss a lot. And when we read this psalm, we've got to be reading it with 5th century B.C. eyes. And once we kind of have an understanding what it meant to them, then we can ask, how does this apply to us? So we really have to know the historical context of what's going on behind this. We have to also know what's the intended meaning that those hearers, when they read this what, and they prayed this, what did that mean for them? So we've got to ask first, what did this mean to them before we can ask what it means to us? So I want to give you some background. Um, first, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. But I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Some of you are going to be in Genesis, uh, I think maybe starting this week. So turn to chapter 12, first book of the Bible, Genesis. And what we're going to see is um, we're going to see the call of Abraham and God makes a covenant with him. And we're going to read the beginning of the covenant that God wants to make. So in Genesis chapter 12, this is what it says, the Lord had said to Abram, go, Abram at that time became Abraham later, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So through Abraham, God was going to give him a son who would have a son, and from that would be the birth of a nation, the nation of Israel. And from that nation would come the Messiah who would be the Savior of all people. And the point of him creating a nation from Abraham was to bless all people and to bless all nations. That was his point. But God also made a promise to him. He said, you and your descendants, whoever blesses them, I will bless. But if somebody curses them, I will curse them. And that's really important to know because the people who are writing Psalm 137, they are the covenant people of God. They're the people of Israel. And you're going to see in a minute, they have experienced cursing. And God in his word said, if somebody does that to you, I'm going to curse them back. Something else I think we need to understand with the background, what's going on here. Um, in the ancient world, whenever one nation conquered another nation, 
in their mind, it wasn't just military power. It was really primarily gods conquering other gods. And so anytime, if I could conquer you, what that showed is, is the God that I worshiped was much more powerful than your God. And so the Babylonians, as they went through that area and were conquering different nations, and as they conquered Israel, and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple of Yahweh, what they were saying was, is Marduk, the God we worship, is much more powerful than your God. And so in this prayer, this is all through the Psalms, this desire for God to defend himself, to stand up to defend his name. Um, So this is not just personal vindication. This is actually them crying out like, God, you need to show them that you truly are the sovereign of all, that Marduk is not greater than you. So that's part of what's going on. Let's get into a little bit of history. This psalm was composed by people who were living in exile in Babylon. Babylon came in in 586, attacked Jerusalem. I'm going to talk in a minute more about it. They destroyed the city, killed most of the people, took some of them back to Babylon as exiles. They left a few stragglers, the poor, behind took most of the people back, most of them becoming slave labor in another country, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And when they attacked Jerusalem, um, the destruction was horrible. I mean, we're reading a lot about Ukraine, right? Bombs hitting shopping centers or places where civilians live. I want to tell you, warfare now is nothing compared to warfare back then. It was brutal. It was barbaric. The cruelty was, was horrible. Um, the Babylonians were known whenever they, ever, whenever they took over an area, they would impale all the men on poles, line them up on the road so everybody knew who had the victory there. Um, as is common in war, they would rape the women. If women were pregnant, we know that they would, they would, kill, they would rape them, they would kill them, they would cover their stomach, they would take the infants out of their womb and they would dash them on the rocks. All the young men um, and a lot of the young women, they actually took to the top of the temple and threw them off. Um, if you've been to Jerusalem, it's a really rocky area. Even that temple mount, there's a lot of stone there, and they were dashing them off of that, killing them. And I mean, it was just, what, what happened there was horrendous, and it was a terrible injustice. So the people who are writing this psalm from Babylon are people who saw that with their own eyes, who experienced that, who probably had family members that were murdered. So it's got a lot of emotion, and I want to dive into it. So can we get in a little more detail? Well, we will. I asked, but we will. So turn, look at chapter 137, Psalm 137. Let's go verse 1. I want to get a little more detail on this. So it starts this way. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion was another way of talking about Jerusalem, their home city, the place where the temple of God was, the special presence of God was, the place where they thought he would always dwell. And it says they do this, they're thinking and sitting and weeping by the rivers. There's really one river that went through Babylon, it was the Euphrates. But they had carved out hundreds of canals for irrigation. And a lot of the exiles there were working as slave labor in agriculture along the canals. So what they're talking about is they're by these canals and they're weeping, remembering their home. Zion, their home city. Verse 2, there on the poplars we hung our harps. And I know this is totally misspelled, it's not a popular tree. It's a poplar tree. Sorry about that. Um, I'm just making sure Sandy Lauchs pays attention that she sees my errors. So. Um, that's what they look like. They still are there in Iraq to this day, which is the modern area of where Babylon is. Trees that grow about 30 feet had low-hanging limbs, and they had hung their harps there. They weren't going to sing their songs anymore. And here's why, verse 3. Because our captors, they asked us for songs, Our tormentors, get to that word in a minute, demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
So the people that have enslaved us are asking us to sing, our tormentors. Really strong word in Hebrew. The root of it is to wail in deep grief and pain. So it's not just they were tormented with the conquest of their land, but even the way they're treated there. There's just deep pain in the way that what's happening. And they're like, it's so common whenever people are captive is they'll, they'll mock them and taunt them and they'll say, hey, sing us songs of back home. We want to hear those songs of Yahweh, the God defeated by Marduk, who's more powerful. It was just a way of taunting them. Um, but verse 4, they say, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So they'd hung up their harps. I think it's a sign of active resistance. What used to be songs of praise were replaced with weeping and dancing with mourning. But just because they refused to sing did not mean they had forgotten. So look at verse 5. Verse 5. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So they're almost putting like a curse upon themselves. If I don't remember Jerusalem, like may I be cursed. And so in these first six verses, this psalm has been more like a lament. Just a cry of pain. But now the mood's going to change, and it's going to get really dark. So look at verse 7. Remember, Lord. In Hebrew, that word remember is really important. It's a word, um, it's law court language. And so when they say remember, they're actually talking to God now as not just the king of the universe, the sovereign king, but as the judge, the rightful judge who enacts justice. So they're like, God, the judge, we need you as the judge to remember Lord, and look at verse 7, remember what? what? Remember what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. The Edomites were actually descendants of Abraham, just like they were. Abraham had his son of promise, Isaac, and he had Ishmael. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. The Israelites, the Jewish people, came from Jacob. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So they're actually their blood brothers. But from the time of Esau, um, the Edomites were constantly at war or attacking Israel, even though they were, they were cousins by blood. Um, they had settled in the south, south of, of Israel. You can see in the yellow, that's where the Edomites lived. And again, just were constantly attacking them, trying to take control. And when Babylon came, Edom, probably out of self-protection, said, we're going to join up. And they sent military forces, and they helped defeat Jerusalem while they were there, even though they were blood brothers. And so they're like, remember what the Edomites did. God is the judge. And now, then in verse 8, they turn their attention to Babylon itself. Verse 8, Daughters, Bab- daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done. And then, verse 9, the line that shocks us all, that makes me cringe Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So let me say a few things about verse 9, if I can, if I may. One, that word infant is probably not the best translation, a little misleading. The Hebrew word does not specify age. There is a Hebrew word that specifically talks about infants, young children, um, but they don't use that word. They could have. The word they used is probably better translated child. The New American Standard Bible does translate it as child. It refers to anybody who comes from a parent and is probably up to marrying age. So really there is no particular age. So it can refer to anybody just like their young people, their young men were thrown off the cliffs onto rocks. It's just saying, so it's referring to, to children, not so much to infants. So um, they could have done a little better with that. 
But the question is still, why use this language, this dashing on the rocks? What's, what's the point? It sounds kind of barbaric, does it not? It doesn't matter if it's a teenager. What's the point of that? I think a couple of things. One, the, the Babylonians had brought in horrible destruction on their city and had killed the majority of their people and their young people, and they're just basically saying in this prayer, Lord, give back to them what they gave to us. It's just a request. Give to them what they gave to us. But I think more importantly, actually, they're actually quoting Scripture. Um, they're actually referencing a couple of prophets. They're referencing Jeremiah and Isaiah, both who were prophets at that time. In fact, Jeremiah was a prophet, not just in Jerusalem before the attack. He ended up being in exile with him. Isaiah prophesied mainly before they were attacked, and he told them it was coming. And Isaiah specifically prophesied against Babylon. I don't want you to turn there. I'm going to read part of Isaiah chapter 13. It is a prophecy against Babylon. Isaiah had said, Babylon's coming. They're going to take you over. They're going to destroy you, take you into exile. But he also prophesied that God would come back against Babylon in judgment. And I'm just going to read from verse 9 some of what he says. See, the day of the Lord is coming, Babylon, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish them for their evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, and I will humble the pride of the ruthless. And then in verse 16, this is what God says through Isaiah. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. So they're not just making this up like they're so angry. They're actually referencing something God has said, that he is going to come into judgment on Babylon, and they're saying, the thing you promised, we want you to do the thing that you said. That's what they're kind of crying out. And this language to me of this dashing on rocks is so interesting, because what you find out if you read, read much into this is that Iraq, even today in Babylon in that area, they have no rocks. There are no rocks for anybody to be dashed against. Um, this is a photo of a poplar tree in Iraq today. It's out in the middle of the desert. It's just sand. It's flat. No stones. The fact that there's no stones there meant that any time they built in Babylon, if you read the Tower of Babel story, they would have to dig under the sand, get down to clay, and they would have to bake bricks out of clay. That was the only way they could build because there were no stones there. Isaiah knew this. Jeremiah knew this. The people in exile knew this. The God wasn't going to come there and dash people on stones because there weren't any. Um, we know that when Persia actually came in and conquered them, it was actually a relatively peaceful conquering, and there was some destruction that went on, but none of this dashing of anybody happened when Persia took over. We've, we have accounts of exactly what happened. So what's going on with Isaiah and what's going on with his prayer in Psalm 137 is what's called hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point. If you remember when I talked um, about the intro to the Psalms at the beginning of June. I said, when you read the Psalms, be ready for a lot of hyperbole, a lot of exaggeration to make a point, especially judgment language. You find this all in the prophets. The judgment language frequently speaks very exaggerated. So the day Babylon fell and was judged, I'm telling you, the stars didn't quit showing, the sun didn't go dark, the moon didn't go dark like Isaiah said. And we know from history that Children weren't dashed on the rocks. It was just God's way of saying, I am going to come on judgment, come in judgment. I mean, we use hyperbole. This year, the first time the Chiefs play the Raiders, some of you Chiefs fans are going to come say to me or say to each other, I've heard it before, we're going to kill them, right? 
We're going to crush those raiders. We're going to destroy them. Well, that's hyperbole language. What you're saying is we're going to defeat them, but you're using extreme language to express it. So that's what's going on with this language, is this, um, is this hyperbole. So verse 9, um, specifically, it is them saying, God, they did terrible things to us. We want you to come in justice, and we want you to act against them. And what we're doing is we're holding you to your word. We're holding you to the covenant you made with Abraham that you would curse those who curse us. And what you said through Isaiah, that you would come in judgment. And so this prayer is them saying, God, we want you as the judge to stand up and to do right and to make this right and to do what you promised you would do. That's what's going on in this psalm. And so I hope you can see that part of what's going on here is these are people living under the old covenant and they're making claims of the old covenant, claims that I can't make. Okay? God has not promised me that anybody who curses me will be cursed. That promise under the new covenant of Jesus, I don't have that. So they have some promises they're claiming that I don't have. But there are things in this psalm we can apply. I want to hit three big things, and then I want to get even more specific. Here's the three big things that I take out of this psalm that I think are important. First, that this was a prayer of people who had experienced grave, horrible injustice. And they are expressing legitimate pain through God-given emotions to how they responded to that injustice and what happened to them. Their cry of pain was legitimate. It was real. And it's the way God designed us to be. It's the way we should respond to brutal atrocities, to barbaric cruelty, to pure and unspeakable evil. We should feel these kinds of emotions about that. Second, it was not just a prayer of people who'd experienced horrible injustice. It's a prayer of people who were longing for vindication and justice. It's hardwired into us, right, to long for justice. We want justice in our lives all the time. So they were naming evil, and they were crying out, saying, you the God who is the just God and who's made promises, we want you to come and to exhibit your justice. We want you to make this right. And finally, this was a prayer of people who were asking God and God alone to make it right. This is not a prayer of people who are saying, we're going to get up from this and we're going to exact vengeance. It's people who are going, giving this to God. Here are our emotions. Here's how we feel. We need vindication and justice done, but only you can do that because only you can rightly administer justice. And so they were passing it on to him to do. They were begging him to make everything right. So that's kind of the three big things that I think are going on. This psalm and all the psalms of imprecation, we're going to look at a couple others in a minute. The author is simply crying out to God, to a God who they were convinced was the king and sovereign of all, that he was more powerful than Marduk, right, this false God, the God who was holy and righteous and just and who cared about justice, the God who hears the cry of the oppressed, the God who will at some point and in some way will act to bring justice. This is the God that they're crying out to, and that's what we're reading when we're reading Psalm 137. Because as Miroslav Vol says, and I'm going to come back to this guy. He has a great story. If God were not angry at injustice, if he did not make a final end of violence, he would not be worthy of our worship. Do you not agree with that? If he were not a God of justice, he would not be worthy of our worship. Why show up to a place where you worship a God who will not defend and take care of those who suffer violence or injustice of any kind? Okay, those are kind of the three big things. Two things I learned from this psalm that are really important. One of them Kylie referenced. 
Number one, we need to fully express ourselves to God. I mean, I learned this in all the Psalms. I especially learned that in this one and in these Psalms. Because these Psalms, more than any other, tell me that there is no emotion, there is nothing I think or feel that is inappropriate before Him. I can take anything that I think and feel before Him. Not only I can, but He wants it. He doesn't want me bringing fake things to Him and fake emotions. He wants me to be bringing Him how I truly feel about something and what I truly want to be done with it. Does that make sense? You know, a lot of people feel like they need to show up at church with wearing their Sunday best, right? Uh, I'm trying. I'm doing my best with my, kind of wearing my Sunday best, my best shoes, a little dusty. But, uh, and a lot of people, I think, feel like they need to go to God in prayer in their Sunday best, right? You've got to just pray the good things he wants to hear. And I want you to know in this psalm and these psalms that God is saying, I want you to bring your real life to me raw and unfiltered because I can handle it and I want it because that's a real relationship, Right? So that's the first thing I learned from this is I need to be willing to bring to God the reality of my heart and how I'm feeling today. I mean, that's what these, I'm going to mention this again. That's what these psalms are is we're reading people's journals. We're like looking over their shoulder in a moment, how they're feeling, what they're expressing. And God's like, I want you to talk to me in the same way. The other thing I learned from this psalm, not just to bring full force all of who I am before him, but I also learned that I think this psalm is a model for me and for us on how to deal with genuine evil and injustice, how we can deal with genuine evil and injustice in a healthy, godly way. When people are wrong, there's several options to take. I'm going to tell you the two most common when people experience injustice. The first one is, is I kind of deny the reality of it. Oh, that didn't, it wasn't as bad as you know, it felt, and then I'll stuff my emotions down, and I try not to feel it. And there's a lot of people that do that. They're stuffers, right? And then there's people that respond the other way when they experience injustice or something evil or bad happens to them. They go Rambo, right? I will exact vengeance. And they do whatever they can in their power through their attitudes, their emotions, behavior to pay back the person that they think wronged them. That's the two normal responses to evil and injustice. And in Psalm 137 and in these imprecatory Psalms, God is showing us a third way, which is a better way which is this, which is taking my emotions, my feelings about that to God, full force, and I'm entrusting him to be the one to take care of it instead of me. I'm like passing the ball off to him, and I'm like, here's how I feel. You take it. You run with it. You're the one that I trust to make this right at the right time in the right way. I'm not going to do that because I don't trust myself. So here's how we do that. To me, this is kind of what that looks like. First, we take our pain and anger to God because it's the only safe place to take our emotions, right? I mean, especially when they're strong. Because, you know, you take that stuff to another person, you know what always happens to the other person? It's called triangulation, right? Somebody wrongs me and I go talk to this guy. I always talk about it in a way that this guy starts hating this guy, right? That's why the only safe place to take my emotions with these kind of things is God because only he can handle it well. So I take it to him, again, raw and unfiltered. But you've got to go beyond that. The prayer can't just be this outburst of rage and anger. They have to be addressed to him. It's channeling my emotions and my desires to him. I'm passing them off to him. Um, I'm letting those emotions go in a sense. I'm expressing them, and I'm like, God, I need you to help me to deal with this in a proper way. So I'm letting him handle those things. And I'm trying. It takes a lot of time and a lot of prayer. I've never experienced horrible injustice, so I don't know what it's like. But those who have told me, it takes years of prayer 
this kind of prayer to get to a place of letting go. But what I do is I'm essentially, I'm getting up from that and I'm like, God, I'm leaving that to you. I'm leaving the justice to you to do the right thing at the right way at the right time. I also am getting up knowing you're a loving God and you may want to encounter them and forgive them and bring them into a relationship. I'm getting up from this, leaving this totally into your hands. And I'm acknowledging in that that only God can handle vengeance because, and justice because only he sees all and knows all. I don't. There's so much I don't know, right? So I leave it there. And it's not just even this temporary release of emotion and of me crying out for justice. There's more going on in some of these imprecatory psalms. There's also this turn of offering myself to God and saying, God, I want you to examine me and help me to be at the right place. So I want you to turn over like a page. For me, it's a page to Psalm 139. Turn to Psalm 139. I want you to see an imprecatory prayer of David where he is crying out enraged, but then how he, he offers himself to God. Psalm 139 is an amazing psalm. I mean, it has God's omnipotence, his omnipresence, his goodness. It talks about how he creates every human being in the womb, how they're all special by him which we stand totally on that. And then all of a sudden, he makes this really strange turn in Psalm 139 that comes out of the blue in verse 19. So if you're there, look at verse 19 of Psalm 139. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So this is that deep prayer language, right? But then look at verses 23 and 24. This is so profound what David does. And this is what we need to do in our prayers to God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you see how he ends that? Isn't that powerful? Like, Lord, there's been this injustice done. I'm giving it to you to deal with it. And this is what I would like you to do. Blah, 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 blah. Man, I line it out. And then David's like, but here's what I need you to do, Lord. I don't trust my heart. And if I've got some rage in here that's not right, would you examine me? And would you show me so that I can live in the way everlasting? Isn't that powerful what David is doing there? I love that, what he's doing. So the purpose of these imprecatory prayers is in the words of Romans 12, 21. It is to overcome evil with good. That's the purpose of these. And the purpose of them is to actually lead me to the point of forgiveness and healing. Ultimately, to lead me to the point of forgiveness and healing. And you might be like, that sounds like, really? Crazy? I don't know. But I want to go back to Miroslav Volv. I mentioned him. He grew up in Yugoslavia under the communists. 1991, when the communism fell in Yugoslavia, communism fell in that country, and Yugoslavia had been holding together several ethnic groups peacefully. But once communism was gone, all H-E double, toothpick, H-E double toothpicks broke loose, right? The Serbs, the Croatians, the Montenegros, they all started warring against each other, different ethnic groups. There still is so much hatred. When Carissa was in Albania a few years ago, which um, which was, was, was right next to that, that some of that, that ethnic tension is still in Albania, very strongly so, to the point that the Serbs invaded the Croatians and like were slaughtering them, took over and, and took over control of one-third of their country. Sounds a lot like Ukraine today, doesn't it? 
Miroslav Valv grew, he, was, he lived there, and he lived in a village of 30,000 people, and his village was decimated. Most of the people were killed. He saw women raped. He saw people beaten. He saw horrible injustice with his own eyes. But Miroslav Valv was also a member of a very small Protestant church in that town. People who followed Jesus, who knew the word of God, and who knew psalms like this, and he took these psalms and he worked them into his heart. And here's what he said. By placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who both loves and does justice. As such, these imprecatory psalms point to a way out of slavery to revenge and into the freedom of forgiveness. And he was able to make that turn to where he could actually embrace his enemies and treat them with grace and kindness. And he wrote a book on it um, called Exclusion and Embrace. And that Jesus is the way of embrace. He was able to use these psalms to work through his emotions with the very people who would slaughter people in his hometown. I mean, here's how this works. Here's how real this is, what I'm talking about. This is not just, I'm not just like putting things on this text, on these psalms. Um, David, I said, authored most of these imprecatory psalms. And he authored most of the psalms that have an imprecatory part in them. He authored almost all of those people, all of those From a young age, David had worked these kind of prayers into his life. I bet if we had his journals and we could look at the things David prayed, we would see a lot of these types of prayers as he daily just poured out his heart to God. I mean, was almost anybody more persecuted than David in the Old Testament? Saul, who he'd become friends with Jonathan and he was serving him, the king, turned on him and was out to kill him and chased him for years and years and years to destroy him, to, to wipe him off the face of the earth. And David never once was vindictive to Saul. David never once would take it into his own hands. David was always proper to, to even stay under his authority. One time, Saul was in a cave going to the bathroom where David was hiding, and David wanted him to know that he was there, and he didn't kill him when he could have, and he, he just cut a piece of his robe off, right? And then when Saul was off a ways, he said, Saul, I was in here, And I want you to know, though, you're trying to kill me. I'm not a person that's going to take vengeance on you. And then he felt sad, you know, remorseful that he'd even done that to the king, somebody in authority, and he asked forgiveness for that. I mean, he was, so many people tried to assault David, Shimei, Dog. His own son Absalom rebelled against him, tried to overthrow him and take his life. And never once in his life did he attempt vengeance on anybody. He embodied the grace and the kindness and forgiveness of God, except one time on his deathbed. He did say, that one dude who said that to me, would you go get him? So I hope when I'm on my deathbed, so be nice to me, okay? <laughs> so one day I'm on my, my deathbed, I hope I don't be like, there's one guy. Like uh, David was the embodiment of forgiveness, and he wrote the most of these. Do you see how David like marinated his heart in these kind of prayers, and he worked them into his heart like salt, right? To give like that good flavor, and it, it ended up making him a person that was very graceful. Even when Saul died, the man who was trying to kill him, he wrote what was called the Song of the Bow. And in the song that he wrote, he grieved that, that Saul died. So ta- turn to Psalm 35. I love this psalm. I really encourage you, if you got your Bible, even if you got it on your phone, you can put notes in. With Psalm 137, I want you to put a note to, to look at Psalm 139 and the end of that imprecation where he says, search me and know my heart. I want you to write Psalm 35. And I want you to turn back there with me. Turn back to Psalm 35. I want you to see something David wrote that to me is so powerful. 
Such an example of how these kinds of prayers can actually change and transform a heart to be a loving, forgiving, kind person. So in Psalm 35, he's going to talk about his enemies. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Since they hid their net from me without cause, without cause dug a pit for me. May ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Now look at verse 13 and 14. Yet, when they were ill, when God did come on them in justice through disease or something, when they became ill, I put on sackcloth and I humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, meaning he was praying for their healing, when that prayer for their healing returned unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother, I bowed my my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. Is that not powerful? That he had put these into his, worked these into his heart so much that he could have this kind of forgiving heart that's healed and has actually affection for his enemies. Wow, I'm, I'm just, I'm amazed at this. And to me, that shows me the purpose of these Psalms. That I can take my pain in the midst of evil and injustice, I can fully cry out to God, I can take it to him, I can ask for justice and vindication, but I can also leave it in his hands and say, you do with what you will, and in the process, change me because I can be pretty dark. And I don't want to be overcome with bitterness and vengeance. So I'm giving this to you. And that's why these prayers are so important. Because if you don't pray these prayers, you're going to do one of the other two things. You're going to stuff it. You're going to deny how real it is. And you're going to stuff it. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to become a slave to that and it will wreck your life. There's a lot of people walking around who stuffed a lot of stuff and it's going to come out eventually. And then there's these people who are the Rambo guys, right? Who are gonna, they're going to live it out, and they're, they're going to make sure that those people feel the pain. And I don't remember the ex- illustration exactly, but I've heard people who take vengeance, it's like they're wanting to give rat poison to somebody, but they're actually taking it themselves, because when you become a person that's vengeful and that's embittered, you actually, it's eating you up more than anybody else. And the sad thing with both of these people, in whichever way it is, have you heard the saying, hurt people hurt people? That if you do not know how biblically to let injustice go, you are going to be a person that it's not just going to spill out on the person you want vengeance on. It's going to spill out on your children, on your coworkers, on your spouse, on your friends. It's going to spill out on everybody. So the way of the word of God, the way of the Bible, the, Psalm, the way of Psalm 137, which at first I'm like, why in the world is that in here? Now I'm like, that's why that's in here. And that's so important. So let's be people of the word. Let's be people who are willing to take our pain and to offer it to God. And let's be people of the cross because as amazing as David was and these people of the old covenant, they didn't have the cross. And on the cross of Jesus, I'll get there, on the cross of Jesus, the most amazing thing happened. That this God we pray to for justice and judgment, would you please justify, would you please come and act and take care of this? This God we ask for justice This is the God who, though he was innocent, one day he said, I'm going to come in justice for all the evil that's ever been perpetuated. I'm going to come, and I'm going to take care of it once and for all. And he came in Jesus, and he went to a cross, and he took all 
judgment on himself for me and for you. This is the God we worship. And this is the God after the cross as followers of Jesus we need to embody to where I can say, God, if you can take all judgment on yourself for me and for all of my evil and injustice, then I can love my enemy with your power. I can pray for my enemy with your help. With you living inside of me, I can bless my enemy. And we can become people like David, but people like David who follow Jesus, David to an nth degree. So I know there are probably some people here today who either right now you're living under some terrible injustice, some kind of wrong is happening to you, and you can't get out of it, you don't know what to do. Or you've had something in the past, and it's been controlling you, and you've been enslaved to it, and you haven't known what to do. Here's my challenge, is I want you to be like David, like these people, and I want you to sit down with a journal, and if you may not be a writer or a journal, but write out some prayers. Let God know exactly how you feel, the evil you've experienced, what you want him to do with it, and in that prayer at the end, you say, but I'm giving it to you, and I'm leaving it to you, and would you search my heart and make me the right kind of person, because I don't know what it's like to bless and to forgive and to love my enemy. Would you make me that kind of person? And if you'll do that, there's no quick answers, no quick solutions, but if you'll start that process and do that, you will put yourself on a path towards healing. And that's why these psalms are in here, is to point us to that path. Isn't this an amazing psalm? You start out and you're like, what in the world? I mean, for, for years, I didn't like it, didn't want to deal with it, and I'm finally like, I've got to dig into this. And I found it so powerful. So you take the word of God home and you apply it in whatever way. Let me pray. Father, I pray for all of us. We've all experienced stuff in some way. There's probably somebody here today, Lord, who has experienced or is right now experiencing some terrible injustice. They're in the middle of something they can't get out of. I pray that you would help them to take that to you, to just be raw and unfiltered, to, to let you hear what it is, to even lay out what you want to happen, what they want you to happen, but that they would turn it over to you they would trust you with it, they would give it to you, and that over time, as they do that, that they would become like David and learn what it's like to really love your enemy and to want to bless them. Make us all that way. So I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who took my judgment upon himself. Amen. All right, 12, a lot of hurt people in the world who are hurting and don't know what to do, so we, we get to take this Jesus and this God to them, so... Wealth as always, you are sent. Have a great holiday. Have a great time with family. But let us always live with an eye to the mission of God and who around us is needing the good news of Jesus. So, 12th, you're sent and you're dismissed.